Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here with Sylvia Dukovic, and she is talking about critical therapy. Um, it's a technique that she's developed that goes beyond psychotherapy and embraces the political aspects uh, of the person, as well as just the individual kind of um, psychological or typically psychoanalytical uh, aspects. So Sylvia, I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, I'm excited to discuss kind of this theory and kind of how you've developed it. Uh, but let's start first with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Sylvia. Well, first, I'd like to thank you for having me on your show. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, let's see, me, where do I start? What um, I guess my story is always intertwined with critical therapy, right? As we mentioned before we started, the personal is always political. I've often been asked what made me create critical therapy. And it's probably a product of my own experiences, you know, having come uh, from Romania as a refugee and being interested to work with torture survivors. Mm -hmm. And then having worked um, in that field, I discovered earlier on that most of the traumas and most of the torture that people suffer are oftentimes in their homes. We all expect um, to have PTSD if we go to war, but we don't talk about the PTSD that unfortunately mostly women suffer in their homes. Um, so I ended up working with domestic violence survivors and it was there that I started offering therapy to people. And I started to question about our relationship to power. And I started to look at how does psychotherapy incorporate power dynamics or an analysis of power. Um, and it often doesn't, right? We do it in our supervision, right? We do it in our schools more or less, but we actually don't do it with the people we sit across from. Um, and oftentimes, because of our society, we mistake that power is something that we have over someone rather than power is something that we share with someone else. So obviously, at the heart of critical therapy, there is a deep analysis of power um, and how it applies and how it comes into the consulting room, how it comes into our lives and how our many different identities and intersectionalities make us who we are. Um, so obviously that's personal and how my many, you know, different identities as an immigrant, I often say that for me, home will always be in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean because there's a part of me that will, that's left and in Romania, that's part of my childhood. Then there's a part of me, you know, most of my life now I've lived here in the United States. So there's that, that, that in between never sort of there. So, um, which is a unique experience and I'm, I'm grateful. And it was also a difficult experience. Yeah. I have to imagine, right. Like being kind of between two cultures. Um, right. I want to bring you back to what you're saying about power. And before we dive into the conversation, just kind of getting the definition of that, because I think power has clearly been in the news a lot, right? I'm thinking the BLM movement, right? The DEI and BIPOC initiatives that are, you know, all over the place. Um, a lot of corporations and companies trying to do, you know, some better than others, right? A job of naming power dynamics. Um, I think of, you know, the 
trend of quiet quitting and, you know, a lot of things that are coming out where people are trying to wrangle this idea, right. And, and trying to be aware of what it is. Um, and it takes on many different forms. So I'm curious, how would you define power? What is power like um, from the lens of critical therapy? So I see power as our ability to influence and change the world, and as well as the social structures that influence and impact us. Mm -hmm. So it's a dynamic. It's never just one-sided. It's how we have agency or Black agency in the world, and also how those systemic structures impact how we show up and what is our agency to make change. Mm -hmm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like being able to make change agency is a big component of it. Yes. Right? To being able to like, mm -hmm. take your will and, and put it out into the world. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think of like freedom, um, you know, liberation power which exactly. I think is, as topics and of your book. Right. Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting is that oftentimes when we talk in our society about power, it's never really a positive thing. I mean, we, all want to have it in some weird way, right? We want to be powerful. Think about the feminist movement, empowerment, and so forth. And yet, most spaces, we think of power as coercive, as negative, as being bossed around, because we don't have good models of power with, of sharing power with another. I mean, think about romantic couples. Think about friendships. How well do we know how to share power? Because we, we don't, get to do it. We spend most of our time, unfortunately, at our jobs, you know, eight hours or more a day, where it's a constant model of someone having power over someone. Yeah. Can you say more about the other model, right? Because I think you're right. I think people are mostly exposed to kind of a dominance hierarchy type model, right? Or like yeah. a chain of command, almost like a militaristic model. Um, exactly. What's, what's this other model that you're talking about? What so might this that look power like? with model comes from this idea that um, we should have the agency to make change, but also to choose how we want to be. But in very simple terms, I would like for us to think of power as a responsibility, mm -hmm. the responsibility we have to ourselves, the responsibility we have over others. Um, and to go back to my you know, example about work, when you're someone's boss, you could think of, wow, I have power over you and I could be coercive and make you do what I want you to do. Or you could think of, I have a responsibility to you. I need to show up in a way that's more, you know, collaborative, that is conducive to you doing your job in a way that you don't feel exploited or that you don't feel used and so forth. Yeah, so having responsibility is something to like create like a humane mm -hmm. workplace, right? Or a humane use of power. Right. Because the truth is, I, I and, and I talk about this a lot, there's always power in every relationship. We can't do away with it. Mm -hmm. So we could either ignore it, we could either say it's something bad and then we don't talk about it because we're so scared of it, or we could actually be more transparent and really be very conscious of how do we want to use that power. And to acknowledge it, I think it's part of that journey of learning how to be collaborative, how to share it, rather than, oh my God, I don't even want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So can we bring it back a little bit to the psychological side, right? I'm curious how people learn about power, right? You know, in, in my practice, I work with a lot of men, a lot of leaders, um, and a lot of them are kind of insecure, right? They had rough childhoods. They didn't feel like they had a lot of power, but then in their life, they end up being in very domineering positions. Not right? surprisingly. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Right. It's an unmet need that they want to um, ramp up and they want to, it's a safety thing for a lot of them, mm -hmm. quite frankly. Right. Um, 
I'm curious, yeah, what you see in the work that you do with, with patients or maybe even a broader theory of, of how that early trauma influences people's understanding of power. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned childhood because I believe our problem with power starts because we tend to believe and we still act as if we have power over our children in a very coercive way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I almost joke about it. It's like children need to have their own movement, but they can't because they can't really sort of go and protest in the streets and be like, I want, you know, I, I, <laughs> they can't I really to, organize in the same way. Yeah, I need to be respected. You know, think about the feminist movement. Think about women marching and saying, no, it's not okay to hit me. It's not okay to abuse me and so forth. That got us the rights that we have today. Children can't do that. And unfortunately, we still treat children as if they're an extension of us or an object that we need to control or maneuver. If you pay attention to the way parents talk about their children more often than not, it's almost as if they're always in a power struggle. You know, think about you want, you know, your kid to put on their shoes and they don't. And instead of being like, well, okay, maybe they just don't feel like it. And maybe we could talk about it. We're like, just put on your shoes, shut up and let's move on. We would never, ever talk to one of our friends this way. And if we did, they would probably be like, well, I don't know if we should be friends anymore. And yet, because our children can't walk away, we usually exert power over them. Um, and that's a very simple way. There's more abusive ways, unfortunately. So I think because of that, our first model of relationship and love is power over. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you hit adolescence or you're a young adult, you're told, well, now go and have a healthy romantic relationship and learn how to share power with another. And we're like, yeah, that sounds lovely. But even if I understand it theoretically, I've never practiced it in my life. So I think therapy is that place where we need to interrogate, where we need to talk about power, where we learn how to share power with someone. So obviously, one of the tenets of critical therapy is a deep analysis of power. One of the things that uh, we discovered, and it's sort of like the way we practice is, you know, critical therapy has three stages. Um, they're not always linear, mo mo more often than not, they are. But in that first stage of critical therapy, when people come see us, we do have power over them. Um, and we have power over them for many reasons. First of all, because we are a therapist <laughs> and because they get to share a lot of intimate things about their lives. And by um, exhibiting that vulnerability, we have power over them. But also we found out that, you know, if we're working with transference, which is the projected emotions that people put on us, right? Um, and as therapists, we need that in order to understand your family history and why you do the things you do. Um, power over seems to facilitate that very fast. Uh, one of the questions that came in one of my classes um, at critical therapy was, if we lived in a different society, would that first stage of critical therapy look very differently? If we, if our first love objects and our induction into society was in power over, maybe we would do it differently. But for now, we have to do it that way. Um, and then in the second stage, we, meaning the therapist, sort of really starts relinquishing some of that power. And we do that very strategically because especially for people who have been oppressed or disempowered, Power is something you claim. It's something that you have to assert. It's something that you have to fight for. You know, it's very paternalistic to say, I'm giving you power. Well, again, that's not, it's not an experiential um, 
place where you actually know what it's like to feel empowered. So through that, you know, critical thinking and consciousness raising, our patients start to really come into their own and to question things and to exert their power in the clinical space. Mm -hmm. And then in the third space, third stage of critical therapy is that place where it's in Paulo Freire's words is two people meeting to dialogue about the world is where now we've understood that I am an expert in psychotherapy and I am an expert in asking questions, but ultimately you are an expert in your own life. You have all the answers. And now we're two people meeting to discuss the world and your healing has occurred where you feel that you can sit in a room with someone, share power and really have a healthy relationship. Yeah, I love that model. I think that's really, really great. And it makes a ton of sense. Um, there's a lot of places I can go. But the, the question that was actually loudest in my mind was going from stage one to stage two, right? Going from that kind of traditional power over relationship to more of a share and that claim, um, which in, in the work that I do and what I try to encourage my supervisees actually includes a lot of conflict, right? Because you said that the client starts pushing back. Right. And they start being exactly. like, oh, yeah, like you don't understand me or like, oh, why did you say that? Or, hey, I don't really want to go to these sessions anymore, right? They're not really doing a lot for me. Okay. And what I've experienced is that many therapists get very afraid in that mm -hmm. kind of trying to cross that Rubicon, right? And they will often double down on power, right? I think right. in the typical behavioral therapy thing, it's like, oh, well, when you don't know what you like, go back to goals, go back to like your treatment plan, go back to that power over thing of like, I'm the therapist, you're the client, and we're working on this thing together. Right. Mm. Um, whereas it sounds like you're saying a very different approach. Right. Well, but, I'm saying you have to engage in it. Conflict right. is very important. Unfortunately, yeah. in our society, we no longer, I don't know if we ever, but I know for sure currently we don't want to deal with conflict in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. It's either we abolish people who don't think like us and it's like, ah, forget, it, I'm going to dismiss you. Or we get into these fights that's not really about understanding. It's really, I want you to agree with me or I need to prove you wrong and then I'm right. As opposed to, let's actually have a conversation. Let's figure out why you believe what you believe and why I believe in what I believe. And maybe I'm learning something in the process. And ideally, both of us from that conversation and that conflict would have changed for the better. Now, we don't have that model. So obviously, if you don't have that model, conflict is not a good place to be at. Because it feels like either a, a narcissistic injury, as we call it, meaning it's about my self-esteem, I'm not good enough, oh my God, I lost this argument. Or it feels like we're just fighting and fighting means I don't love you. Um, but conflict doesn't mean need to mean that we're fighting. Conflict doesn't need to be bad. And I often tell couples, the way you resolve and you deal with conflict is a good indication about the quality of your relationship. Because I don't know out there, but I'm telling you, I don't think I've met anyone who is like a mini-me where I get along with them all the time and there's never conflict. And even if that were true, that would be a little weird, I think. Well, it's something, you know, it's like kind of, yeah, no, yeah, I don't Dating want a clone would be a little strange, right? Yeah, and you don't grow. I mean, I grow. One of the things I tell everyone who comes to critical therapy, especially people who are training, is challenge me because that's how I learn. If you're not going to question me, I am just going to become one of those crazy founders and we, you know, we're all out there, meaning that we believe we know best. Mm -hmm. Our way is the highway. And then we become one of those institutes that stuck in the 30, 40 years ago where we do everything like they did it back in the 1920s. And that doesn't work.
Yeah, so let me ask you about that specifically, right? Because that's an issue that I encounter when I was doing nonprofit work. It's an issue that a lot of my clients that tend to be in leadership positions encounter is that, that it's like we say the thing, right? We say like, hey, I'm open to feedback. Sometimes they even create retreats where they can have, get feedback. They create like really you know safe spaces where there's feedback. And yet, right, oftentimes the power structure is so locked in that the people that are below on the hierarchy, right, really are afraid, understandably, right, of yeah. vocalizing anything up towards an authority figure. Yeah, we go back to people who say, yes, challenge me. And yes, you know, sort of argue with me. But you have the responsibility that, first of all, you should mean what you say. Mm -hmm. And also what you say has more power. I am very cognizant. It's my theory, for God's sake. So I'm very cognizant that when I'm in that class and I teach it and I say something, it's a lot more powerful than when one of my colleagues says something. So I think it's important to invite um, new ideas. It's important to be challenged. And it's also important to be mindful of how you show up when that happens. And and unfortunately, most people say they want to be challenged in theory, but then they get insecure. Something happens internally. What I would say is if if that happens to you, sort of take a pause and, and question, what, what am I actually feeling right now? Because sometimes what we think doesn't match with what we feel. And what we think is what we say. It's rational. It sounds beautiful. And how re we react is how we actually feel in the moment. Totally. Right. Yeah. Defensiveness or insecure or threatened or all these things can come up. And like you said, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like with parents and children, right? Like the child is watching everything the parent does down to body language, facial expressions, where their gaze is. And I think it's the same in a, you know, workplace relationship, right? Where your, your voice could be saying something, but your facial expression could be saying something totally different. Or maybe you have a right. tense body posture, or maybe you're talking faster, right? Things that you might not even be aware of, but that person in that power under position is picking up on and they're tuning to. And they're like, okay, yeah, the boss says, you know, they're cool with this, but really they're pissed off, right? Or really they're going to fire me or whatever, you know, they're Right, say. exactly. And I mean, two things, first of all, because there is a history of bosses doing that, but mm -hmm. to, to go back to something you were talking about in therapy and how therapists are afraid of conflict, I think our patients are always smarter than, than us. And they could pick up if you and this is why I say you need to know yourself well enough if you practice as a clinician, because if you're not comfortable with stuff, people are going to pick up on it. 100%, 100%. Well, this is a great conversation. We're going to go to our first commercial break and we come back. We'll chat more about, I think, how to use these skills if you're in a power position, whether that be as a therapist or as a leader um, and how to kind of introduce some critical therapy ideas into your culture that you're building. Um, so if you're listening, hang on in there and we'll see you on the other side of the commercial break. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees 
This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C, dash, azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot, teachable, dot com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here with Sylvia Dukovic, and we're talking about critical therapy, um, power, liberation, conflict. And where we left off uh, before the break was talking about conflict. And I and you laid out that, at least in this culture, there tends to be two ways, right? One is people avoid and then kind of abolish people, right? Excommunicate them, right? Kind of more passive aggressive, right? Is kind of what I would call that. Um, or they tend to go into it trying to either to hurt the other person or trying to be right or trying to win. Like it's a very just aggressive um, kind of battle-like structure. Um, then understand those two styles? Yes. Yeah. So the idea is, okay, how do we do conflict in a way that actually resolves the issue, right? Or that we actually learn about each other. Um, and I think it's true in workplaces and in couples, um, specifically in families. Can you say a little bit about shifting people out of those two stances that you see? Because yeah, I see that everywhere, right? Either avoid and, and abolish or try to hurt and try to win. I think it's different based on where we find ourselves what i mean by that and this is how you know you mentioned the political in the beginning mm-hmm. um and i don't know you know i was talking about this last night um we need to come up with a better word for the political when we talk about critical therapy inviting the political um i don't know about human rights because it's not who you vote for it's not are you a republican or a democrat it's really about how do issues such as you know workers rights um, issues such as access to um, health insurance really impact and affect your mental health. And and what I say is in your question is depends on how you approach conflict based on where you are, because I would love to say to people who are you know working, well, go to your boss and sort of advocate for yourself and tell them that they're an asshole. Well, you can lose your job. So that's the reality uh, and the precarity of our society and our jobs right now. Um, So what I would like to do instead is in that scenario, I think it's up to us, right? I think it's up to people who have privilege and power to really own up to it. Mm 
and to be mindful of how we use it. So if you're a boss, it 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 sort of like you start that revolution. You know, we always expect people who are less powerful than us or people who, who are oppressed to fight the revolution. Of course, they want to, right? Because they have so much to win. And yet, for us who have power and privilege, we don't actually think that we should be doing that fight because we have seats at tables where we could open up conversations that could actually change the world in a very real way. Sure, we would lose some privilege. Sure, some things we would have to give up. But ultimately, if we believe in human liberation, if we believe that these systems such as capitalism, um, sexism, racism impact all of us in some way or another. And I understand it doesn't impact us equally, right? I'm not one of those people like, oh, racism hurts everyone. It does. It hurts us very differently. For some people, it costs them their lives. For some people, it's just discomfort. Um, but they hurt all of us. And if we who have that power and privilege actually sort of step back and said, I want to do it differently, that we could imagine different worlds. We could share power in a different way. So that's what happens in 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 the work sort of structure. At home, again, there's another power dynamic, depending if you're in a couple and if you're in a heterosexual couple, how do you get to share power? Well, first, you have to acknowledge that at a certain point in the relationship, one person will have more power than the other. And then sort of lean into that and discuss it. And, and when you argue, if you're at that place where, let's say, you make more money, that matters. You you kind of say, no, it doesn't matter. or what, But it always does. It's always in the unconscious. It's always already present. So I think it's all of us need to really be mindful of our place and what we exert over people and how to be more open to challenging ourselves. It, you know, the revolution starts at home and also the revolution starts within us. One of the things I discovered as a therapist is everyone wants to change the world, but it's hard for us to change ourselves because it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You know, um, I love what you're saying. I want to ask kind of like a pointed specific question on this, right? Um, how do I say this? I think many therapists and many therapeutic ideas operate on this assumption of what you're talking about, right? That there actually isn't power or they don't, they don't address it. Right. And this is idea of like, yes, if you are open and you're vulnerable and you're sharing your feelings and you're like having a conversation from your heart, then like, you're going to get what you want. Right. Because people are going to respect that. And they're going to connect with you as a human. They're going to be like, wow, I didn't know X, Y, and Z was hurting you. And I want to help you. Um, I'm saying it kind of flippantly because I don't see that happening at all. Right. I mean, I've seen many therapists, including myself, right. Coach, clients to have these big reveal conversations and then get the door slammed in their face, right? Usually right. by somebody who has power over them. Um, and that's the truth. And yeah. this is why, you know, it's funny, we're going through this sort of organically. Um, the second difference or tenets of critical therapy is that we believe that the uh, clinical relationship or the therapeutic relationship is a blueprint for all other relationships. Meaning if you know how to have a healthy collaborative relationship in therapy, you'll know how to do it somewhere else. And why, why that's important is because it's not just a philosophical or a brain uh, thinking endeavor. It's a very experiential endeavor. And it's really a relationship that you end up having with your clients or your patients. Now, why I say that that's important is because precisely, I can't tell Susie, if Susie is my you know patient, 
go out there and be vulnerable and put it all out. Because I don't know who Susie's talking to. Most likely, she's going to get hurt. So she can't practice out there in the world. She's going to practice with me in therapy. And by learning how to do it with me, she'll learn how to do it with others. She'll learn how to create safer spaces for others to do it with her. But she will also learn how to discern which are the people you're not going to do it with because it's not going to end up well. Right. I like that. There's a much more nuanced view. And like you said, much more rooted in reality, right? That like not everybody is like a perfect therapized individual, but, right? But. People get triggered. People have their own hangups. People have their own trauma. Um yeah. So how does that play out in a therapy with, with you as the therapist, right? Like what would be something that a client or a patient might bring to you, a, a piece of conflict or something that you might have to negotiate or work around? Well, yeah, I, oh, we, there's, you know, it happens organically. It yeah. could be about our sessions. It could be about something that I said. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I tell new therapists, especially is, it's really important that if you said something that was wrong or inappropriate, like not inappropriate, like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. But, you know, you're flip about something. I, you know, sometimes I do this and, you know, I'm trying to be funny and not maybe. Um, or you've misread a situation and then your patient comes and is like, that hurt me or that bothered me. To not be defensive about it. Yeah. You know, we're humans. We make mistakes. And why that's important is not only because it's authentic, but it actually teaches our patients how to make mistakes and own up to them. You know, I love how we always project onto creating these spaces for the people that we see clinically from them to be better. But how do we practice that with them? How do we practice that in our lives? You know, if someone is late for a session, you know, sure, there's resistances and so forth. And I'm going to question all that. But I have to be open to actually express my feelings like, yeah, I'm kind of frustrated. And, and that's important because I think there's something real about learning how to talk about these things where in our real world, we're not taught how to do it in a way that's really healthy. Yeah, I see that a ton, right? Like, I mean, I, I got trained in modern psychoanalysis and so much of that is around impact right? Mm -hmm. Of like, oh, this is how you're impacting me. Like I'm feeling frustrated, which as a new therapist, I was like, I can't say that to a client. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to make my problem, their problem. Just some of the stuff that we're taught in, in grad school, right? It's like, right. we have to put all of our needs, all of our experience on the side and just be there completely for the, for the patient. And that's just but you know, not yeah, effective, the, right? Yeah. And it's not it's true. It's fake. Yeah. Yeah. And people can sense that you're fake. You can't be hurt and sit there and be like, that doesn't bother me. Yeah. And also, I have to wonder, what type of person are you where nothing bothers you? That's not healthy. I mean, I think there is that line of when do you dump on your patients and it is about you? Or when is it something that is actually very important and very pertinent to the therapeutic relationship and healing? Mm -hmm. And you're right. Unfortunately, our schools do not do a good job in teaching us how to be authentic therapists. How do you love without boundary, right? One of the things in the book, Critical Therapy, is we I talk about love and love in psychotherapy. I cannot believe that we that any therapists out there who spend so much time with the people that we see and hear these intimate stories do not ultimately love their patients. And yet, in our schools, we're told, no, you can't do that. Right, we're told that's the boundaries. most dangerous thing. That's that's like yes. the, like it's more dangerous than hate is actually love, right. right? 
Exactly. Thank yeah. you. And that's the problem with the world we live in. Love is dangerous. Hate is not. Mm -hmm. And also, why do we, it, it, the reason why we, we shy away from love is because unfortunately, it got co-opted into this consumer romantic, you know, sexual paradigm. Love means you give me something as opposed to love is genuinely seeing another person, witnessing their life, caring for them. And I think the hardest thing about love that I've learned from being a psychotherapist is how do you love someone without having an investment into the outcome? Right. That's it's not, hard. I don't love you because you do this. I genuinely love you. Yeah. Or loving someone that, that struggles, right. That you, that in our world, I mean, therapists do help, but we help in a very specific way. We can't help kind of tactically and we can't, you know, we can't enter into their lives. Right. And help. So how do you love someone from kind of afar? Yeah. And I, I think it's, how do you love someone and try to give them the tools to figure out what's best for them? Mm -hmm. Um, again, you know, I am reminded of parenting and, and there is always this paternalistic view of parenting. Somehow we know better what's, what's good for our children, right? We tell them, trust yourself, have agency. And yet in the first, you know, 10, 15 years of their lives, we never listen to them or give them any agency. And, and I think that it's really important to learn how to love someone and to give them the space to make decisions, even those, even though those decisions might be quote unquote wrong according to you. But people know themselves and it's okay to make mistakes. Right. Yeah. It's that rupture and repair, right? Make mistakes, but then come back and talk about it and kind of heal through it. And yeah. what I often say, and I'll say this to everyone who's listening, how do you know what this how to make a decision? What I say to people who come into therapy is. First question, why are you making the choices that you're making? Is it because it's rooted in something that's defensive? Oh, I need to get this job because I need to be successful. Oh, I need to do this because I was told. Or is it a desire? Most of our choices, if they're not healthy or if they're rooted in childhood or adult trauma, come from a defensive stance. I mean, it could be good, meaning they, quote unquote, they produce wealth or whatever, right? But that doesn't mean it's a healthy place for you. The way you know that the decision that you made is good for you is that it comes out of something that you desire, something that you want, rather than something that you feel you have to do or, you know, you feel like you're responding to something else. Yes, I'm hearing that it's, yeah, it's love and kind of want-based, not survival or like duty. Yes. Yeah, or fear-based. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fear-based, yeah. that's a good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let, let me ask you another question, right? Uh, back to kind of the therapy thing. Supervisors come to me with a lot, they struggle, and I also struggle too, uh, I'll own that, with depressive clients, right? Clients that, you know, are kind of having the same session over and over again, um, that are kind of just stuck in a place of no power, right? That they feel like they're completely powerless, they feel like they are victimized by the world, they feel like completely shut down. And what I find really interesting is that oftentimes the therapist feels victimized by the, the patient, right? They feel oh, like the wow. patient is mm -hmm. like overriding the session, that they're not making any progress, that they're kind of like being aggressive through mm -hmm. their through their depression, right? Being mm -hmm. non-compliant, right? Is maybe more behavioral way of looking at it. Um, what do you say for that, that dynamic? I always find that interesting where, right? People that often say they have no power find ways of expressing it in other ways. 
Uh, I love the non-compliant. You know, I'm going to like jump on them and be Do like, it. I don't like that. Yeah, I don't like it either. I mean, I, I've moved away from behavioral <laughs> therapy. And I also have my own critique. Because it's it. like, so, okay, talk about power. Um, yeah. yeah, what what I would say to that is, first of all, it might be a good example of how someone doesn't know how to use their power. So this is their way of using power. Yep. And hopefully you're a skilled therapist that could actually point that out. Mm -hmm. Um, I would also ask them, you know, what, why is it that they're stuck? What is, what is happening for them? Um, Instead of focusing, see, the way we presented that is I am focusing on me, the therapist. It's all about me. Well, you're not complying. You're annoying. Oh my God. As opposed to, first of all, what's happening for you, the client, Mm -hmm. but what's happening for us? Because that means that we've created a dynamic that either replicates something in your life where you need to be the victim. You need to come in and sort of be at this despair. Maybe I don't see you enough. Maybe you're afraid that if you get well, therapy ends. That's the real deal, right? Maybe, Maybe also might need medication to get you through the hump. But I don't think that having being stuck in therapy it's not the end, but it's actually the beginning of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for therapists to actually ask questions rather than not say anything or just be frustrated and be like, oh, here we go, Susie. You know, five sessions in, it's the same, same conversation. But then you have to ask yourself, why is it the same? Con- what are we working through? You're always working something through. Mm-hmm. Either you're missing something or either you are not attuned to really ask the questions you need to ask so that the patient could actually tell you what's happening. That's great. Yeah. You're speaking my language. I love doing in the moment work and I try to encourage my therapist to do it. Um, before we go to our commercial break, what would you say to a therapist that is struggling with doing this in the moment work? Cause I think it is scary and vulnerable and feels sometimes even inappropriate. Like we were saying before to some early therapists, how would you encourage them to go to do that, to take that risk? Yeah. Uh, go to therapy. Um, I (laughs) I mean, that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) How can you be a good therapist if you haven't? I mean, I don't think we ever arrived, right? I don't think we, you know, I wanted to say if you haven't dealt with your issues, right? Our issues are always with us to a certain degree, but it's important that we have a self awareness and understanding in a very real way. Also, you don't understand the how hard therapy is unless you're on the other side of it. And you do this type of work in a very, very difficult sort of transformational space. Now, I do want to go back to one thing before we go to break, which is the other thing about people who are stuck and the, you know, the depression is that there is also the societal part of they might be in their lives in a place where they're really stuck. So it's not just, oh, they're depressed, they're so stuck, why they can't move beyond and be happy. It's like, well, if your housing is precarious or if you're in a shelter or if you're, you know, you just lost your job, you know, it's okay to really be depressed. I think that's a, actually a normal reaction, right? We, as therapists, we, we've gotten too used to accommodating people to our oppressive systems rather than sort of talking to them and with them, challenging them to really see how the system is rigged and impacts their mental health. That is a great topic. And that was actually some of the initial things that inspired me to be a psychotherapist was kind of like the revolutionary aspect of it. Um, We're going to go to our final commercial break. When we come back, I want to pick up there. 
and talk about this difference between just kind of socializing people, right, right. versus actually having them be empowered and, and kind of breaking free from those norms. So if you're a listener, hang in there and we'll see you on the other side of the commercial break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C, dash Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot teachable.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show, um, where Sylvia and I left off with this really great conversation I just want to pick up, where you talked about how traditional therapy, maybe behavioral therapy, maybe kind of traditional case management, right, is socializing people to oppressive systems, rather than helping them break free or liberate themselves from um, these oppressive systems. And that was 
a big part of why I became a therapist is I saw it, I forgot who I read, but someone said that it was the most revolutionary thing you can do is helping people become more of themselves, right? And like breaking free from conditioning and breaking free from all these kind of rules, right? That we we build up over time. Um, so I want to give you the floor. Can you talk more about that process and about that kind of shift in perspective or mindset? Sure. Um, you know, unfortunately, psychology does not have a good history around liberation. Um, and this comes, as we know, from liberation psychology in Latin America, as Martin Barrow said, you know, psychology has been used for generations to oppress people. Um, and we, under the guise of quote unquote science, some people were less than and and so forth. And we still practice those things. And I think because of that, most of our educational systems, even the one that claim to be somewhat radical, are still geared. If you if you go down the clinical track, right, you go to social work school, you go to, you know, psychology uh, to get a PhD in, in, in psychology. Yeah, we talk about social justice. Sometimes we talk about all these great things. But as a clinician, you're taught to leave all that at the door. So good clinical work is supposed to be apolitical. I actually just did a workshop yesterday and some, you know, someone asked me like, well, but if I bring some of these issues, is that really good clinical work? As if somehow these things are not already present in the consulting room. So one of the interesting things about me, is, you know, is that I've always seen these issues to be there, but people are like, are they? They're always, always already present. Now, and when you don't talk about these things, you're actually, you're not apolitical. You are aligning yourself to the status quo. You know, one of the best examples is our, you know, radical uh, sliding scale. So one of the things that we did was that anyone and everyone who comes to critical therapy for therapy pays for that session according to their income and resources. So we don't have any low fee or high fee, meaning we have all low fees and all, all high fees. There's no cap. That's what I mean to say. So a session could cost $10, $100, $1,000, and so forth. Um, and what I discovered is that this actually creates space for people to talk about money. And I also discovered that... Talk about like shaking the status quo, right? Um, no one is comfortable talking about money. Yeah. Um, I mean, poor people kind of are because they always have to. Think about it. You always negotiate something like, can you cut me a deal? Can you see me for fee for less fee and so forth? Affluent people never discuss money and yet they struggle with money. They struggle with issues about, you know, money is about power, masculinity, self-esteem and so forth. And, and we don't, you know, we don't get an opportunity to discuss it because you're never asked. Now, so traditional therapy, you go and, you know, you pay for the session, whatever it is, if you have the money, and then you don't open up this conversation around money and about what it means to be affluent. So this is an example of how we are actually indoctrinating people to the status quo because we are not talking about it. We're not talking about what does the fact that you make, you know, $500 an hour mean? Um, and I 
urge everyone who is a clinician or everyone who's going to any of the sort of professions that deal with psychotherapy to really demand better from our schools, to really teach us how to engage in these very sometimes uncomfortable conversations. No one wants to talk about race. No one wants to talk about, you know, class. No, but they're so necessary because they're always already present. Yeah, I think I think that's key. You know, um, one of my mentors encouraged me also to talk about money. And what she was saying, which is kind of what you're saying, is that without that context, you don't understand your client, right? right. Like, I mean, I work with affluent clients for the most part, uh, mainly men, mainly white men, right? And it's interesting that you can see how, or I see how stressed and controlled they are by money. Yeah. And then I just ask them like, hey, like, how much do you make, right? And that lets me see the context of what they're talking about. Right. And all of a sudden, something that to me making oftentimes less than them would stress me out. I'm like, oh, this is stressing them out. And this is well within their means. Is there something else going on? Right. Yeah, and like and- you said, it's often about masculinity or about power or about, you know, I don't know, dominance, right? People taking from right. them, whatever it is. Right. But there's, there's a story behind the money question. Yeah. And the problem with money is that you never arrive. Right. Because the more you make, the more you're going to meet people who make more than you. Mm-hmm. So if your definition of yeah. self-esteem is tied to how well off you are, you will always feel not good enough. And that's mm-hmm. the problem. Right. And the more you're encouraged to spend, right? Because things just get more expensive, right? right. Now you're looking at private schools for your children, right? Or now you're looking right. at uh, vacations and more expensive resorts or whatever it is, right? Like right. it just kind of comes with you. Um, for many people. But you know, a lot of therapists are not comfortable, again, talking about money. And again, because we're not trained. You know, I gave this um, workshop at the Association for Women in Psychology to talk about money, right? And everyone is so every sort of clinician out there is so uncomfortable with conversations around money. Some of them are like, well, this is why I just work for a clinic. I don't have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's And it's fascinating. And our schools, think about it. In your training, you never have a course on money and how do you, even how do you set up your practice. But forget the, that part. You don't talk about how do we discuss money, which is such a significant part of our lives. And yet, psychotherapeutically, you might analyze it, but you don't talk about also how it enters the clinical relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that is, like you said, it's enforcing the norm. I mean, I I was lucky, right? And I'm of a Jewish heritage, right? And it's a stereotype, but it was true in my family that money is openly discussed. And at our family holidays, we actually talk about each other's businesses and give each other business advice. And it's just part of, it's part of how we connect, right? As, as you know, in my family culture. So I think I had some privilege there. Um yeah. But yeah, for, I think for most people, you're reinforcing this American ideal of not talking about it mm-hmm. or talking around it maybe is more accurately because people have yeah. other ways of showing off their wealth, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and I think same, you know, for sex, right? Mm-hmm. Um, same for kind of erotic ideas, right? Like you don't talk about it, you talk around it a lot, right? Um, we were talking a little bit in the break about psychedelic use, right? Drug use and spiritual right. experience, very similar. Like don't talk about it, talk around it. Um, and it sounds like critical therapy really hits a lot of those like taboo topics, right? Like, you know, sex, death, I don't know, drugs, money, uh, whatever, right? Religion, politics, all the stuff that we're told like, oh yeah, like you don't bring that up in public or uh, in polite conversation, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, and and those are things that really deeply influence us. It's not that we just want to bring them up because they're interesting conversations. It's because they're tied to our wellness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, just kind of underline what you said of doing your own work as a therapist is critical, being comfortable yourself because your clients will pick up on if you're not, 
you know, it wasn't until for me, a big one actually was spirituality. I was raised in a kind of like a religious or anti-religious household. And it wasn't until I was able to embrace my own version of spirituality, for me, it was Buddhism, um, that I was able to bring that up in, with my clients with any kind of like authenticity. Right. Right. And once you attune, people start talking. They're like, oh my God, I believe X, Y, and Z. You're like, I've never but, been able to talk about this with anyone or, or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, when we don't bring or not even bring it, if we're not open to discusses, discussing those topics, our patients kind of figure it out and then they never bring it up. And right. that's a missed opportunity. It's also a missed opportunity for healing. We, I don't think we do good jobs when we ask some of the people who come through our doors to leave parts of their identities at the door because mm, it's kind of difficult to talk about. Yeah, so as, as we're moving towards close here, I'm curious, is there kind of a nugget you could give to any therapists that are listening? I know that we have a good amount of therapists listening to this show because of, you know, my networks, network and connections, um, something that they could play with, maybe an intervention, maybe like a little piece of theory, something they can kind of chew on, um, you know, as we, as they kind of want to integrate more of this into their work. Sure. Should I say read my book? No. Um, no read, I mean, read the book. That's probably a good place to start, right? <laughs> Learn it from the uh, what I would say is to really not be afraid to be challenged, mm -hmm. to really demand more from our trainings when we go to workshops and when we go to institutes, um, and to really read a lot of the psychology that comes from, you know, liberation psychology in Latin America and not the traditional. I mean, Freud, you should read. I know I'm, I'm saying this is true, but there are also alternatives. And how do you, you know, to incorporate and not be afraid to get away to to really escape the dogma that we learn. Right. And good clinical work should encompass the individual and their, you know, their real lives as opposed to just some esoteric clinical sterile setting. Love it. Amen to that. Uh, so Sylvia, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, where can people learn more about you and more about critical therapy? So going to our website, uh, criticaltherapy.org, you will find uh, all about our trainings. You will also, you could get a copy of my book. Also, if you go to the website, um, you will see a link to our Instagram account, which is actually my Instagram account because my last name is so impossible for people to remember or know that we figured this is the only way for people to reach me. And I encourage all of you to, you know, reach out if you have ideas, if I've said something that, you know, sparked controversy or not. Um, really, I, I love to engage with people. I love to talk with people. So and I love to be challenged. That's how I grow. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, for those longtime listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you think this was helpful, like it, share it on social media, send it to somebody or maybe a therapist in your life needs to hear some of these messages. Um, Sylvia, thanks again. And we'll see you next week on another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program.